If you got your Bibles, today we are concluding uh, David and the Amalekites. Today we're wrapping up our understanding of, of why God sends suffering upon his people, what that means for us in the correct way for us to, to walk through it and endure it together as we attempt to strive and follow him. First Samuel chapter 30 is where we are. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. And there's two principles that I want to be drawing out today as we start to, to wrap this bad boy up. Now, there's two principles. The first one's going to be relatively short. The second one, though, I think that's the one that needs to land with us and land with us well. So I'm going to spend the majority of our time there. But we've got two principles we're going through out of the text today, and then we're going to be concluding our sermon series on, on suffering. Read with me together, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Verse 6, and David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook at Bezer, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and his 400 men. 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook, the brook Bezer. Excuse me. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. I pray that we would hold fast to it and that we would look to you first and foremost in all trials that we deal with in our lives. Um, Lord, today as we, as we look at David's life and what he did and how he moved, and if we look at the, as we look at the rest of the Bible and understand how we should operate in times of trial and suffering, I pray that you would make it perfectly clear to us and that we would trust you and obey you and follow you in these moments. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back to verse 7 with me here in the text, and you're going to see something, something very clear. So we talked about this last week. David got into trouble, and he sought the Lord's guidance immediately. He said, and David said to Abiathar, priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out. Boom. Verse 9, right there. David hears the clear instruction of the Lord with regards to what he should do, and he immediately rolls out. Now, I want you to take special notice here, though, this trek that they're about to go on. So they've, they've already come back from war. 
They're already exhausted. They're already injured, no doubt, from combat. Their bodies are worn thin. They were looking forward to being home with their wives and children and getting a little R&R. They roll in. Everything's gone. Everything's falling apart. And now they have another fight to fight. So David asked the Lord, Lord, should we do this? Shall we go after them? And the Lord says, yes. Now, what happened, though? If you look there and the rest of the text, you see that the trek was so brutal that 200 of them couldn't even make it. They were worn thin. The travel was so much, it bore so much of a burden upon all of them that a third of David's troop couldn't even finish the trek. And these were warriors. These were David's mighty, strong men who were ready to go out and fight. And 200 of them couldn't even finish? They're exhausted. Incredibly, incredibly difficult. But once David had the word from God, he moved. Amen? Once David saw what the Lord would call him to do, he moved. And you know what? Some of his guys couldn't make it. Now we got even less to fight with. So be it. We're still moving. We're still rolling and we're still going to obey the Lord. That's the first principle that I want to give us here today. The first principle of when we're walking in suffering is immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. Because listen... The Lord is working to teach you something in your times of trials. That's obvious. We've been talking about that for weeks now. Whenever we're going through difficult seasons, whenever we're going through trials, the sovereign hand of God is working, and he is burning away the dross from within us. He is, he is removing the imperfections from his people. That is the purpose of a good trial from a good God. He's refining you perpetually. And one of the fruits of a good trial, whenever we realize what's happening in our lives, is we, we want to obey fast, partly because we want to pass the test, man. <laughs> We're ready to, to move on from this trial and do something else. Some of my dearest friends from years ago, it was almost as though they cycled through the same trial in their life every two or three years. You know why, Right? Because we're hard-headed, stubborn people. <laughs> because we're slow to follow, slow to learn, and slow to obey. Parenting does this wonderful, refining thing to parents who are self-aware. Okay? Does this wonderful, refining thing of, of whenever you be, discipline your children and whenever you're trying to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and you're trying to train them up in the way they should go, all those wonderful things. In your children's disobedience, if you're paying attention we really should see ourselves, right? And see yourself quickly. <laughs> Have you ever been tempted as a parent to say the words, why do you? Oh. <laughs> oh, I, I know why you do, because, okay, I got it. I see it. And what do we train our kids to do? Obey right away, right? Right away, every time, all day, with a good attitude. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we all still working on that ourselves, too. Kids, this is no secret. <laughs> you, you know your mom and daddy. You know. But in order for us to grow and thrive and, and flourish in the trials that the Lord has sent us, one of the fastest ways for you to do it is to obey fast. Lord, I see what you're calling me to do, and it's hard, and it's going to be painful, and it's going to cause me confessing some sin, and it's going to cause me stretching in some ways that I don't want to do it. So be it. Let's go. I'm ready to learn. Let's grow. 
That's the, that is the number one principle that we should draw from this particular text. Faith prays, yes, but not just pray. God, help me! It's like that meme that we see on the internet. I wish God would speak to me, and the Bible is closed across the table. God, teach me something! God's like, I'm teaching you right now. <laughs> you're just not listening. You're just not obeying. You're just not following me yet. May we learn this lesson quickly and now. But in the times of our trial, yes, pray. Ask the Lord. Lord, show me. But the moment that you know what the Lord would have you do, you move. See, faith is not passive. Amen? Faith is not where we just sit down and hum shamalaka and enter into a trance and wait for God to give us visions and spiritual experiences. That's Easternism. That's not Christianity. Christians are reformers. They're active. They're moving forward. They're fighting to change the world. And not just the world out there, but the world in here. You fight to change who you are and your lifestyles and your patterns. And when you think maybe you're not too terrible at it anymore, you, you work to change the patterns and the designs around you. And the concentric circle moves out and out and out and out. We're so worried about the nation and balloons from China. Who cares? Who cares, man? China's spying. Duh. <laughs> How many balloons do you think we got over China, right? Or whatever. A lot. Okay? We, we focus all of our attention and all our energy on things that you can exert no change over. Nothing. But you can't exert change here. Here. Well, not without the Lord's help, that's true, but he's sending you a trial. So guess what he's doing? He's helping. He's helping. Our first priority it should be to look into ourselves and stir up the affection and obedience that the Lord would call for us to walk in. May we learn and learn quickly. Faith is not passive. Faith, real faith, is active. It moves, and it doesn't just move on things that out there that it can't change anything with, but it moves in here and in the concentric circles through which we may change our families, our neighborhoods, our communities, and maybe in some of our cases we actually have influence over our city and our parish. May we wield it well. But faith prays, yes, but once there is a clear course of action, we move. We move. And that means primarily we move on ourselves first. <clears throat> now, why is this also important? Whenever you're going through it, okay, when you're going through an incredibly painful, difficult season of life, what's your first response? Somebody get me my weighted blanket, some Doritos, and Seinfeld reruns. <laughs> I'm just going to vanish, okay? I don't actually have a weighted blanket. That was a joke. Some of y'all wonder, though. But listen... I'm very serious here. I'm very serious. Our, our response too often to difficult times is to retreat, right? Is to, is to slink away. No, that's not what the Lord would have you do. The Lord would have you know what's coming, ask him what to do, seek counsel, seek his word, and when you know, move in the right direction in which you should operate. Faith is not passive, it's active. You must move. You must take those steps. You must if you've ever been to a good biblical counselor, 
And if you've ever seen Pastor Kirk, then you have been to one. But if you've ever been to a good biblical counselor, one of the things that they'll tell you whenever you're just in the thick of it and you're sad and you're, you're feeling low and, oh, gosh, I'm so, oh, there's so much going on. One of the things that they will often instruct, depending on your exact circumstances, is to say something like, hey, why don't you go serve somebody? <laughs> because when we go through the thick of it, our temptation is to say, oh, woe is me. Oh, it's so hard for me. Oh, gosh, nobody cares about me. I'm going through such a difficulty. So a good biblical counselor will say, you know, it's, it's really not as bad as you think it is. <laughs> you can go serve someone and, and use that service not to remind yourself, look, people do have it worse off than me. That's not the point, okay? The point of your service is to take your attention off of yourself and give it to somebody else. And if you've got little kids at the house, great news, you have no choice. <laughs> they will, doesn't matter how bad your day is. If you don't take care of them, they will die. You have to take care of them. God's given you that grace. And so we should continue to trust him and walk in that. Faith is not passive. It is active. Now, that's not going to work like a magic wand and just fix all your problems, but it is a start. It is a start. And you can begin to move in a particular direction. If you, if you get home at the end of the day and the house is just a wreck and the kids are bouncing off the walls and everything is going sideways, our response is very often to do what? To say, oh, I want this place to be in Why is it this way? It should not be this way. It should be in order. But what's the response of service? What's the response of the person who's not obsessed with themselves as they go through difficult times? They respond by saying, I'm going to do something. I'm going to help. I'm going to move and exercise dominion over the dishes today. <laughs> That's going to be my dominion mandate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move and I'm going to move in dominion over my toilets today. Amen, church. You know, like nastiest. Ugh, okay, that's fine. Septic tank backed up. Well, time to exercise my dominion. You know, like that's it's part of it. That's what the Lord has called you to do, to serve those around you. And that will help you in the times of trial. You see, because if your trial is about you, and you just focus on you, and you only think about you, and you only, oh, all these difficult things, then you're forgetting 95% of what the Lord is probably trying to teach you right now. Maybe he's just trying to teach you how to push and fight a little bit and work for the glory and dignity of others and not yourself. But let me get into my second point here. We must take action, yes, and our obedience ought to be immediate, right away, immediate obedience, amen? amen. And we don't just sit back and and sit and be, oh, woe is me, you know, with our weighted blankets or whatever. We don't do that. We run after the Lord, and we try to fight to obey Him, and we pursue to obey His commands in all things. But there is a very important thing that we have to remember here, that when we walk through trial, we are facing God and not the trial. Are you all hearing me? Where does David go right away whenever his trial begins? He gets back, all his buddies, who were his buddies 30 minutes ago, now they want to kill him, okay? He's losing everything. Everything's falling apart. He writes Psalm 69 and maybe some others as a result of the difficulty that he's going through. And in these moments, what does he do? Yo, get the ephod. 
he hollers at the priest. He's like, we got we to we talk to God. We got to figure this out. Let's, let's go to the Lord. We must do it now. In the trial that he's walking through, he remembers that step one is to be facing towards the Lord. Why? Because where's the test coming from? This is, we've talked about this a thousand times already. Where's the trial coming from? It's coming from God. When Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, how did he get there? Do you remember? He was ushered in the wilderness by the Spirit. He was sent there by God into this difficult season, the suffering that he would walk through for the purpose of God's glory and the building of his kingdom. So God is sovereign over our suffering. Yes? Amen, church, right? God is sovereign over our suffering, and he sends it for a good purpose and a good reason. We learned that already. And that means that in the midst of our suffering, ultimately, ultimately, we are safe. There is no pain that this world can inflict upon you that will have any threat to your eternal status. Not a chance. It's not possible. This is why martyrs could be skinned alive, because they knew where they were going. This is why William Tyndale's dying words on the stake were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes as he burned alive. Listen, God is sovereign over our suffering. We know that. We know that we are safe in the midst of our suffering. We know that. But we need to go a slightly different direction. I use this illustration already, but let's continue to hammer it home a little bit. The, the, the kitchen is disheveled. It's a constant mess. Somebody in this house keeps making the dishes dirty, and I hate them. What's going on? The kids are losing their minds. Dad's not paying attention. He's trying to figure out what's broken with some random thing around the house. Everything's falling apart. I just don't feel like doing anything about this. But here's what you need to understand that's underneath every single trial that we walk through. The problem isn't the kitchen's a mess. The problem isn't that the kids are losing their ever-loving minds. The problem isn't that, that dad is not paying attention to anybody's problems. The problem, listen, is God. The problem is God. Now, I don't mean that God is the problem in a negative sense. But I do mean this. For those of you that ever did uh, any type of sports, y'all ever run suicides before? You ever throw up in a trash can while you run suicides? Yeah, y'all know. Okay. That coach is the problem, <laughs> is he not? That coach, that he, he's making you do this. Now, it's for your good, and it's going to make you into a better team and a better person and all these different things. But that coach, in the moment of that suicide, and when you're barfing in the trash can on the sidelines... He's the problem. Now, we're not saying that God is the problem in the same sense that, that you're under God's wrath necessarily. But, well, let's think through this in a slightly different way. There is pain and suffering in the time of trials. But if your trial is all of the focus, you're missing the whole point of your trial. Your focus must be upon the Lord. The dishes in the sink, if they are all of your focus, you're doing it wrong. The, the misbehaving children, if they are all of your focus, then you're, then you're doing it wrong. The, the 
aloof husband who's not paying attention to what's going on. If he is all of your focus, then you're doing it wrong. The real issue is God and your relationship with him. We wrestle not against dirty dishes, but against the Lord. Okay. The unbalanced books, the low bank accounts, the the food going bad in the fridge, the the weight problem that you're dealing with, the insomnia you can't sleep at night, the speeding tickets that you still get every week in the same town, the bad grades, the whatever. The trials aren't the point. God is the point. Okay. To be completely honest, this story from the Bible always kind of blew my mind, and I never really understood it, and I think, I think... I've got it, at least a piece of it. Do you remember the story of Jacob in the wilderness? And in the night, um, before Jacob goes and meets with Esau, remember this story? Before Jacob goes and meets with Esau, this man shows up at the camp, and Jacob and this man start wrestling. Do you remember this story? They start wrestling, okay? And turns out, halfway through the wrestling match, Jacob realizes that he's wrestling with God. Somehow he still holds, I don't know what went through his brain. I'm wrestling with God, sweet, let's do this. You know, that was, that's wild stuff to me. But I, but I think I get it now. He, Jacob had received the promises of God, and he went into exile, and, and he, he worked for this horrible, evil, corrupt man, but he eventually secured wives, children, you know, all these things, even though Laban, like, stole everything from him, stole his children's inheritance, stole all these problems, and so finally, Jacob decides he's got to leave, he rolls out, then he hears as he's leaving and walking back home again that Esau's coming to kill him and all of his family with him, and Jacob cries out to God, I I left here with nothing, and I'm going back with nothing, God, what are you doing? You promised me good, you promised me offspring, you promised me generations, save us! Fulfill your promises. You see, that's what I mean. See, Jacob didn't start wrestling with God when he was literally wrestling with God. Jacob started wrestling with God in that prayer. That's where it actually kicked off. God, you made promises. God, you said, please save us. And he would not let go. It's an illustration of his life, really, this moment where he's wrestling with God. All his focus, all of his attention is is on that moment. We must wrestle in our lives, right? With sometimes literally with people, sometimes with illness, sometimes with distress and anxiety and loneliness or whatever. But what we're really wrestling with in all of those moments is not that. It's with the Lord. Where does your trial come from? It comes from God. The difficult things that you walk through come from God. And Jacob eventually realizes who it is he's fighting. He's fighting God, and he says, no, I will not let go. And what does he demand? What does he demand? Do you remember? He says, I will not let you go until you what? Bless me. You see what's happening? Jacob, with every ounce of strength he has in his body, is clinging to God's promise. He won't let go. You get it? He's holding. God, you promised. You promised. You promised that that you would bless my family. You promised offspring. You promised generations after me. And now we're all about. You promised. And he will not let go. 
He will not until you bless me. And what did God do? He blessed him, yeah, but then he also did what? Quick reminder that, hey, I'm God, you're not. Bloop, no more hip for you. Like, you know, <laughs> with his little finger. It's like, it's like wrestling with your kids. You ever wrestle with your kids? When you wrestle with your kids, you don't wrestle with your kids. No, you're getting everything. No, you don't do that. That's bad. That's bad dadhood right there, okay? I don't hold back from my children because they're going to learn. No, that's terrible fatherhood. <laughs> terrible fatherhood. When you wrestle with your kids, you, you know, you got like 20%, you know, if that even. You're messing with them. You're holding them down, you know, like, now they never win. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> they got to earn that victory when they're 25 and you in the home. Like, that's, that's when it happens. But you dial it in for them, right? Why do you do that? Because you love them. Because you want to teach them how to be a little scrappy. And you want to teach them how to, how to live and how to, how to follow and how to fight. And, but you do it because you love them. It's the same thing that's going on with Jacob and the Lord. It's the Lord, Okay could have wiped him out in a moment's notice without even thinking about it, but he didn't. He wrestled. Why? Because he loved him. And all of those trials that Jacob was walking through were from God because God loved him. They were made to drive Jacob to the Lord, to where Jacob would cry out and beg and say, No, you promised. You promised. And I will not let go until you bless me. You promised. He fought and fought and fought and fought and fought, and God blessed. I think we got a lot to learn out of this. First, we talked about this a little bit already. What kind of God can't win a fight? A God that calls you his son, his heir, his child. It's not that he can't win a fight, it's that he restrains himself out of love for you. He's not pouring out wrath and judgment and destruction upon you. You'd know if that was the case. He's pouring out a trial that's grace for you, that he will use to refine you and refine you and refine you. But you, as his child, can fight as hard as you possibly can and can hold on and say, I will not let go of you until you bless. I will not let go of you. You see, that's the point of the story. The awful, awful things that we walk through. No, God, I will not let go of you until I see your promises fulfilled. Don't you get it? That's the point. The point is not that Jacob wrestled with God. That's a stupid, man, stop. That's not the point. The point is that Jacob remembers God's promises and he will not let go. The deep, dark, heavy trials that you walk through as the people of God, this is what the Lord would call you to do. Don't let go. Because that is a temptation, isn't it? 
when things get real bad, when things get near impossible to get through, your temptation is to, I need my weighted blanket and my Fritos and my Seinfeld reruns. I'm just checking out. That's not not what the Lord would have us do. He invites us to wrestle. New, you can't win (laughs) in the same way that Jacob couldn't win. But in Christ, you can. Because his promises have been made to you that you will have a life and an inheritance and that you are no longer cast away as a son of destruction, but as a son of God, as an heir. And if you look around in your life and you only see trials and things falling apart, then what do you do? You hold on to God as hard as you possibly can. You say, I will not let go. I will not let go. God, you promised. You promised that you would take care of and provide for this family, and I will not let go of you until I see that come true. God, you promised. You promised that there would be an inheritance, that there would be generations that would come after me. You promised, and I will not let go of you until it comes true. God, you promised that my children would believe in you. You promised, and I will not let go until I see it happen. You see that the whole disposition changes in that moment, doesn't it? It shifts everything that you do, everything that you believe. God, you promised, and I will not let go until I see it come true, until I see it happen. Because in the moments of our trial, we run away, we flee, we we go, no, I don't want this. But God says, no, I've sent it to you for a good purpose. Don't let go. And if we agree, if we say, I'm not letting go, I'm holding on through all of this, it drives us deeper and deeper into his promises where he reveals our sin, he reveals our iniquities, he he reveals our, our undeservingness of his grace, and we cry for it even more like children. God, I see who I am, I know who I am, but you said, I repent, but you said, and that's what I'm holding on to, you see. It changes everything. David shows us this. He's lost everything. He's lost his friends. He's lost his his possessions. He's lost his family. Even his buddies want to kill him. David sees, and he, he knows what the Amalekites did. But where does he go first? He doesn't, I'm gonna fix this. He doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't doesn't go run like he did a fool earlier and get his sword and he's like, I'm going to deal with this idiot. No, no, no. He doesn't do that. He's learned his lesson in that trial. Instead, he does what? Bring the ephah. We got to talk. Lord, what would you have me do? He goes to God. He hears his instruction. He moves in that direction. Despite how difficult it may be, despite how hard it might be for him to walk and obey the Lord in this way, he rolls. Matthew 10, verse 28, teaches us to fear God before all things. And so David is facing his enemies, the Amalekites, but that's not who he's really facing. He's really facing God. Do you get it? He's going after the Amalekites, but he recognizes already that he doesn't wage war against powers. He doesn't wage war, excuse me, against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. He ra- he's waging this war that he knows he's called to go and fight. 
but he's not just pointed at the Amalekites, he's pointed at God. That's where his face, and you can see it in Psalm 69. If you haven't read through it all the way, I would encourage you to do that. It's phenomenal. But I'll just read a few points out of it. David is pointed to God, and we can see it here. Psalm 69, verse 22, let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We read an imprecatory psalms today. You see, and we're gonna sing one later. Y'all just this y'all came to church, man, weird church. Y'all picked y'all picked poorly. Look. Verse 23. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continuously. You see what it, he's warring with the Amalekites, but he's warring with his face towards God. He's going to fight. He's going to battle, but he's got his face pointed towards the Lord as he goes to fight. God, you're fighting this fight, so do this. So make them afraid. So make their table a a tripping point for them. He says in verse 24, pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. He's going to fight the Amalekites, but his face is towards the Lord. See, this is the dispensation, the the disposition, (laughs) not dispensation, my bad. This is the disposition that we as God's people should have in all of our trials. We got fights to fight, okay? But you can pray this way to the Lord because your face should be towards him and not just towards your enemy. He's off to fight, but first he fights with God in prayer. Those technical verses that I just read, those are called curses, and they make us uncomfortable because we've become unbiblical Christians. And we should return to the Bible and understand that all of God's words are good and for our instruction and for our benefit and for his glory. And we should learn to wield imprecatory psalms and curses rightly, not haphazardly. He's off to fight. And so he sings war songs along the way. This is not him just saber-rattling. He's appealing to God to fulfill what? To fulfill what he promised. God said that he would curse those who curse us. And David is saying, okay, God, you said you'd do it, so do it. And here are the specific curses that I would like. (laughs) There's nothing unbiblical about this. And we should hold fast to it. Now, this is a particular situation And the Amalekites had been condemned by God, and they had been appointed by God for destruction. So I'm not telling you to go just like, my boss is a jerk. God, kill him! Like, not not like that. That's the wrong way to handle this. But there are things that we should pray for. So let's ask that question. If our trial is due, at least in part, to our enemies, then how do we handle these things? Well, what does the Bible tell us to do with our enemies? Shoot them. No, wrong. Try again. The Bible tells us to love our enemies, right? Now, does love mean you're passive and you roll over and you let them walk all over you? No, that's not what that means, although we might think that because the American church has become neutered and passive. But love means you stand your ground, you proclaim the truth, and sometimes that means you're going to lose your job, lose your reputation, lose your friends, lose your picket, whatever. But you still hold fast and you fight. You love, our en- you love your enemies, absolutely. What does the Bible say that we should do for those who persecute us? Shoot them. No. (laughs) Wrong answer. We pray for those who persecute us. We pray what? We pray first, especially that they would be converted. Amen? Amen. We pray that they would be converted because now they're not your enemy anymore. They're your brother. Hot dog. Let's roll. But we also pray for justice. 
okay? We also pray for justice. You want God's justice in the world. We as God's people want his justice to be reigning in the world. We want that. We go to God and we ask for him to do his justice, not our justice, (laughs) his justice. And then we move from there. And we remember that our problem isn't really our our enemies, ultimately, that all our trials come from who they come from, God. You remember the story of David and Goliath, right? David and Goliath, what happened? Israel got passive. Israel got weak and lowly, and they stopped really following the Lord. So what did God do? He sent him the Philistines. They sent Goliath. God often raises up difficulties in our life, Amalekites, Goliaths in our lives to discipline the church. Absolutely. And later on in David's life, when David gets passive, God raises up Absalom to try and take the throne from him. That's not what's going on necessarily here. But it does remind us that we should be called to be perpetually faithful, to be salt and light throughout our life as God's people. I don't want to go too deep on this because I want to keep these points going and make them very strong. But let me say this. Let me close with this. Your wars that you fight, it's not about the people. It's about God. And the danger that you run into if you become obsessed with people is bitterness, right? But here's how God works. God takes the enemy and converts them. (laughs) And remember what Paul's problem was whenever he first got converted. Do you remember? All the church was like, "Uh, hey, this is, uh, wait, (laughs) We inviting him in? We inviting him in? Y'all, y'all know, wait, him? Paul? Because he was killing us like two weeks ago. He's coming to dinner tonight? You see, if we remember the correct direction, the correct orientation that we should be facing as we are going through difficulties, as we are going through trials, it's not against flesh and blood in which we wage war, but against powers and principalities. If we maintain our focus upon God in the time of our trial, then you're not going to have that bitterness sink into your heart. See what I'm saying? You're not going to have that that issue of of orientation. And you'll be able to recognize that whenever God does something amazing, amazing, like save your enemy, you can receive them with joy into your heart. Bitterness against your enemies will drive you mad, and it will hurt your Christian life. And for many of us, we count the times that someone has done us wrong. And that root of bitterness just digs down deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts. Your trial cannot be focused on your enemy. Your trial is focused upon God and whatever it is that he wants to do with you in this season. But the proper disposition is to be like Jacob. I'm not letting go. I see the difficulties that you've sent to me. I've seen the trials that you've sent to me. I recognize that they come from your hand and I will not let go until you bless. Let's pray.